Right now, um, for those who don't know, I'm going through a series in the book of Mark. I'm teaching through the gospel of Mark. And it's kind of an, a means to an end because I want to teach, I really wanted to teach on the book of Acts for such a long time. I'm, I'm a history nerd. I love biblical history, ancient history, Roman history, Israeli history. And the book of Acts is like a combination of all that stuff. Um, but in order to get to Acts, I felt like it was important we teach through the book of Mark. And we've been teaching through that. We, we covered two chapters a week. And we covered like Mark 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6. And last week, I only covered one chapter. This week, I'm only covering one chapter. So it's like we hit this, this speed bump. And I'm kind of slowing things down a little bit. Uh, but I think that's important because there's no rush. There's nobody standing over me and being like, you got to get to the end of Mark by this date right here. Just me, myself, just thinking i got to hit some arbitrary deadline. But I don't need to do that. There is no deadline. So I'd rather just take time and just go through it and just pull out the good and easy stuff and spend one, one week on each chapter until we get to the end of the book, the book of Mark. But last week, I covered Mark chapter 11, which, by the way, guys, if, um, if we have time at the end, I usually try to wrap up about 12.30. If we've got a little bit of extra time, I'd like to give you a recap of the protest that many of you were a part of and attended. For those who couldn't go to this protest, um, we made the news, yay. But for those who couldn't go, I want to give you a recap of what happened, what we saw, um, and why we win, if we have time. So we'll see. But Mark 11, go in your Bibles to Mark 11 real quick. It's the Matthew, Mark, it's the second gospel, Luke, John. And while you're going there, let me ask you some review questions. Who wrote the book of Mark? We assume John Mark did, right? A traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Was he one of the original 12 disciples? No, he wasn't. Where does Mark fall in terms of the age of the gospel? So if we have the four gospels, is Mark the youngest, the oldest, in terms of its composition? It's the oldest gospel of the four. So Mark wrote his gospel first, John wrote his gospel last. John is around the turn of the century, around 90. Mark is interesting, not only because it's the oldest gospel, but also because it's, it's potentially the only gospel written prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. If we take the earliest dating of the book of Mark around 66 AD, then the temple is not going to be destroyed for another four years. That's pretty significant. So he's writing about things that happen kind of in present tense in the temple that we don't have with other gospel writers. So I think that's pretty significant. Um, last week, I covered uh, the idea of the fig tree. We talked about, um, uh, we talked about the, uh, somebody tell me, I guess let me ask you guys, what is one thing you learned from last week in teaching on Mark 11? What did I cover? Yeah. Yeah, what was the conflicting story in Mark 11? Uh, the first three synoptic gospels um, had it at the end. Yes, the had, had what at the end? The um, testing of the um, priests and everything out of the temple. The cleansing of the temple, right? We talked all about that last week. Good, thank you. You get, you get a gold star today. Yeah, it's interesting because the three synoptic gospels have the cleansing of the temple, the purging of the temple happening, happening at the end of Yeshua's ministry. Whereas John chapter 2 has it happening at the beginning of his ministry. It's like one of the first things that he does. And we're like, okay, is there a conflict here, right? And then we resolve that conflict 
using Leviticus chapter 14 and the purging of the house of leprosy. The purging of the house of this stuff called Sara'at. And we talked about how the high priest would have to inspect the house how many times? Twice. He'd have to come once. He'd have to come again. If he came again and he saw that the house was still leprous, what did he have to do to the house? The house had to be destroyed. No stone could be left upon another, right? It's exactly what happened with the temple. Yeshua comes in John's, John chapter 2. He sees that there is corruption in the house. And he's the priest. He's the high priest, according to Hebrews. He comes and there's corruption. All right, I'm going to come back later and check later. He comes in Mark chapter 11. There's still corruption. Guess what? And we read, we read Matthew 23, was it? There will be no stone left upon another. There we reconciled the two, right? So it's both. It happened twice. Okay, good. That was a quick review. Um, I lied. Go to Mark chapter 1 real quick. Go to Mark 1. We're going we're gonna to jump a little bit here. Mark 1, it starts out, the beginning of the good news of Yeshua, the Messiah, the Son of God. So what is Mark calling this book? The good news. What is the good news? I feel like we have done kind of a poor job so far of talking about what this good news is. Now we've come up with this, this English word, gospel which is supposed to encapsulate this idea of good news. But if you go to any person in Walmart pumping gas or whatever, and you say, what does gospel mean? They might think about like a type of music, or they might think about like a track or something that they found in a bathroom stall or something like that, right? They don't understand the gospel per se. And I would stand to reason that some of you might not fully understand what the gospel is. Well, the Greek word being used there for good news or gospel is this word right here, euangelion. Euangelion, okay? You kind of see, you kind of make it out there. This is what, this, these are Greek letters. Euangelion. This to me looks like the word evangel, evangelion or evangelize. Why does it look similar? Because that's where that word comes from. Evangel, evangelize. It's right here, euangelion. So when we share the euangelion, we are euangelioning them. We're evangelizing them. We're giving them the good news. What is the good news, though? Now, here's how it's often taught. It's often taught one side of the coin. Accept Messiah into your heart as the forgiveness of your sins, the atonement for your sins, and you will be saved. Say a prayer, and you will be saved. Now, that's good. That's important. Say a prayer. Accept him in your heart. Ask for forgiveness. Confess your sins. That's step one, right? But what is, what's step two? What's the fulfillment of that? Well, we got to go, to figure that out, we got to go to a different book of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52. And I teach this in Hebrew. When I, if you want to take beginner's Hebrew with me, I teach what the gospel is. We really unpackage it a lot more than this. But go to Isaiah 52. Yesha Yahu. Yesha Yahu 52. Chapter 52, look at verse 7. Isaiah says, How beautiful are, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who is bringing what? Good news. Now, the word there for good news is this Hebrew word right here, Besorah. 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 
Let's pause there. Euangelion is a Greek term primarily used to uh, talk about the conquest of the emperor. When the emperor expanded his territory, that was thought to be to his subjects, Euangelion, good news. Our emperor has gained another part of the, the world. Besora, it's kind of similar but different. Besora is the idea when, you know, picture this, you're standing on a wall, the wall of a city, and inside that city is the throne of your king, and you are a watchman on the wall. And you see this soldier coming from the top of the hill, and he's running down the hill, and he's shouting at the top of his lungs, the king has won, our king is victorious. And he's shouting that, he's shouting, and he busts through the city gates, and he comes in, and all you hear, the king has won, we are victorious in battle. That's good news to your ears, especially if you're the king. Because if you're the king and you've lost the battle, if your army has gone out and they lost, it's not much longer to you, your head and it gets separated from your shoulders, right? That army's coming to you. That victorious army is now coming to your gates. So if you're victorious in battle, it means you get to sit on your throne longer. That's the idea of Besora. Okay? Let's keep going to Isaiah 52 here. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who is bringing Besora. Proclaiming peace, bringing Besorah of good tidings, and announcing what? Salvation. Just take a wild guess. What is the Hebrew word there for salvation? Yeshua. Are you guys proclaiming peace in Yeshua? And saying to Sion, your God is king. Listen. Your watchmen are raising their voices, shouting for joy together, for they will see before their own eyes Adonai returning to Zion. Break out into joy. Sing together, you ruins of Yerushalayim, for Adonai has comforted his people. He has redeemed Yerushalayim. Adonai has bared his holy arm, and in the sight of Kol HaGoyim, in the sight of all the Gentiles, in all the ends of the earth, will see the what? The Yeshua, the salvation of our God. So when Mark says in Mark 1, this is the beginning of the Besorah, or the Evangelion. In other words, what Mark is saying is like, hey guys, I'm going to write down the, this, this, this letter, we could say. And it's going to tell you, it's going to explain to you and give you proof of how our king was victorious in battle and expanded his empire. And then inside that, there should be this idea that the Gentiles, even to the end of the earth, will hear about this thing called Yeshua. What was our Savior's name? Yeshua. Salvation. So you see, Isaiah is being very prophetic there, isn't he? There's over 2 billion Christians in the world right now who proclaim Yeshua. They may know him as a different name. They may know him as Isa or Jesus or Jesus. But they all are proclaiming the same guy as king, Yeshua. Let's go to Romans 10 real fast. Romans 10. Look at with me at verse 14. Romans 10, 14. Paul is now going to pick up on this. And he's going to say, 
in verse 14, Romans 10, 14, that there's going to be people who are not going to want to hear the good news. That they're going to turn a, they're going to turn a blind eye to it and say, no, that's not good news to me. He says, how can they call on someone if they haven't trusted in him? How can they trust in someone if they haven't heard about him? How can they hear about someone if no one is proclaiming him, Yeshua? And how can people proclaim him unless God sends him? As the scripture puts it, how beautiful are the feet of those announcing good news about good things. What is he quoting from there? Isaiah 52. The problem is that they haven't all paid attention or listened or hearkened to the euangelion, the besora, and obeyed it. Wait a second. There's going to be people, Paul says, there's people who are hearing the besora, the good news, and they're just like, no, no, I don't want anything to do with that. That's not good news. How is that possible? Well, today in Mark 12, we're going to talk about that. We're going to see how Yeshua predicts this as well. So go with me to Mark 12 now. Sorry, that was all just leading up to Mark 12. Matthew, Mark, Mark 12. Mark 12. <clears throat> I hope you did your homework and read this chapter ahead of time. Mark 12, verse 1. Yeshua began speaking to them in parables. Pause. What is a parable? Now, Anthony did a good job a few weeks ago talking about parables. Parables are like, the sages call them like the handle on a boiling pot. Well, that's weird, right? Or the rope on which hangs the bucket in the well. A parable is like that rope. You ever seen those old wells? You drop a bucket down into a well and it scoops the water up. Well, the rope is how you get the water up. The handle is what you grab to hold the steaming hot pot of water. That's a parable. The parable allows us to grasp something that is otherwise unattainable for us, that we can't really fully fathom. Now, I have here a coordinate plane, a coordinate plane. We have our X and our Y axis. Some of you are dry heaving a little bit of seeing this since like the 10th grade, first time since the 10th grade. But what, what do we draw on coordinate planes? We draw coordinates, yeah. We draw points, right? Sometimes we'll put a point over here. Now these things, these coordinate planes, are to show us trends or trajectories of objects or money or statistics, okay? So sometimes we'll, we'll put like a, a, a coordinate over here, we'll plot it on a coordinate plane. Then we'll put one over here, okay? So we take these data points and we plot them on the coordinate plane. And then, have you guys ever done this in math where you connect the dots, like you have one up here? And then you draw, you're supposed to draw this thing. Have you ever done it? Raise your hand if you've done it before. Okay, good. Oh, all, all of you. Excellent, excellent. Sorry about that. Um, what do we call this line here? A parabola. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, you kind of. If you weren't dry eating earlier, you are now, right? There's the word parabola. Parabola. This is a negative parabola, and if I were to do one going up, that's a positive parabola. It means that something is getting larger or growing. Do I have that right? Did I mix them up? Negative. Stacey's smiling at me like wrong. No, okay, good. Okay. Excellent. I know that look. Husbands, you know that look your wife gives you when you're saying something that's completely off. Alright. Well that's that's a negative parabola. Something is going down. That could be if you know, if you're like me, that's my bank account. Or no. That could be Anthony's ping pong score. I don't know. But that's a negative parabola. Now, 
you hear the similarity between a parable and a parabola? You hear the similarity there? Why are they similar? He's, he's speaking in parabola. That's weird, right? What do you do when you take seeds? Let's say, like I just, I just planted some, uh, some lettuce seeds. Do I take these tiny little, almost microscopic seeds and I plant them each in the ground, like, dee, 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 like one at a time? No, I don't. I take my seeds and I throw them. I broadcast them. And then the seeds, they go up in the air a little bit and they come down and they land. They form a what? Parabola. Parabola. That's the idea of a parable. He's taking a, a message, like a seed, and he's throwing it into the crowd. Here you go. Hope that you can get this. You see what I'm saying? And then that seed grows. Now, how many of the parables are agricultural in nature? Yeah, a lot of them. Guess what? We're about to read one. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Then he rented it to a tenant farmers and he left. When the harvest time came, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect his share of the crop from the vineyard. But they took him, they beat him up, and they sent him away empty-handed. So he sends another servant. This one they punch in the head and insult him. He sends another one. And they had, they had him killed. And so with many others. Some beat up, some they beat up, others they killed. He had still one more person left, a son who he loved. In the end, he sent him to, to them saying, my son they will respect. But the tenants said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be all ours. So they seized him, they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do, he says. He will come, he will destroy those tenants and he will give the vineyard to other people. Haven't you read the passage in the scriptures? The very rock which the builders rejected has become like the cornerstone. This has come from Adonai, and in our eyes, it is amazing. So they set about, who's the day? The religious leaders in the temple. He's speaking this in the temple. He's speaking this in the house, right? That he has condemned. They set about to arrest him. For they recognized that they had to, he had told the parable with reference to themselves. So in other words, they understood this parable quickly. They were like, oh, no, he's taking a jab at us. Now, did you translate it that fast? Did you understand it that quickly? They did. I didn't, but they did, apparently. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, this is also found in the other synoptic gospels. Go with me to Matthew 21, 33 to 46. Matthew 21. So it was Matthew, Mark, Matthew 21. We're going to read one other account and see how it lines up. See if there's any differences, see if there's any, any conflicts or anything like that. Matthew 21. Same, same parable. Matthew 21. We're at the end of his ministry. He's in the temple. He says, now listen to another parable. So listen close. See if there's any differences. There was a farmer who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower. And there he rented it to his tenants, and he left when the harvest time came, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect the share of the crop. Verse 35. But the tenants seized his servants. This one they beat up. That one they killed. And another they stoned. So he sent some other servants. More than the first group. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent to him his son, saying, My son they will respect. 
But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they grabbed him. They threw him out of the vineyard and then they killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They answered him, he will viciously destroy those vicious men and rent out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop when it's due. Yeshua said this to them, haven't you heard what it's read in the scriptures? The very rock which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This has come from Adonai, and in our eyes it's amazing. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God... Ah, you see another, you see another detail there? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the kind of people that will produce what? Fruit. As the head priests and the Pharisees listened to his stories, they saw that he was speaking about them. How did they see that? But when they set about to arrest him, they were afraid of the crowds because the crowds considered him like a prophet. Matthew gives us more details, doesn't he? He says it's like the kingdom of God. He, he names who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the head priests. And then what else? That they considered him to be like a prophet and they were afraid of the crowds. There's one slight variation too where it says the, the son, they killed him and then threw him out. And then Matthew says that they threw him out and then they killed him. But there's just a minor little variance there. So how did they know that this was about them? And then secondly, what does this story remind you all of? What, what biblical story does this remind you of? Yeah. Who is it? Nabin. Nabin. Oh, yeah, 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 that too, yeah. What do you got, Jamie? Killing all the prophets? Yeah. What, what's on the story, Darlene? The who? Killing Yeshua? Yeah. Think way back. Who's a character in the Bible that this reminds you of? Maybe it's just me. Joseph. Yeah, who said that? You get a gold star. Joseph, yeah. He was the son that was loved by the father, and they conspired to kill him, right? Remember that? It just kind of reminds me of that a little bit. So let's go back to my initial question. How did the religious leaders know that he was referring to them? Why did they get all out of, been out of shape? Immediately they knew, he's talking about us. How dare he? Well, to really understand, we have to go back to these symbols. What do you, what do you think these things represent? You guys talk to me. What do you think the vineyard represents? The church body? Okay. All right. Anybody else? The kingdom. The kingdom? Okay. The temple at that time? Okay, good, good. All right, what about the tenants? Who do you think the tenants are? The wicked tenants? Priests. The priests? Yeah, it seems pretty pretty evident. That maybe the priests? What about the tower? What do you think the tower is? Remember the Bibliothecus Tower? The temple? Hmm. What about the what about the wine press? What do you think that is? Um, is there anything that bleeds like grapes inside the temple? The altar. Who said that? Megan gets a gold star. The altar. What about the owner? Who do you think the owner is, Andres? Yeah, possibly. What about the servants? Who are the servants that are being sent? Prophets, okay, I think that's a pretty safe guess. Though we're not told explicitly. Who do you think the son is? It's pretty evident that, yeah, he's, 
Like Mark starts out, starts out, Mark 1 says, this is the beginning of the good news of Yeshua, the Messiah, the Son, the Son of God. Why do you think there's three servants? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why is there three? Mark says there's three servants and then the Son. Everything is established by two or three witnesses. Yeah, interesting. Possibly. Well, do you know we can decode all of this using the scriptures? In other words, these priests, they knew their Bibles. The Pharisees, they knew their Bibles. And that's why, in a moment's notice, when, as soon as this parable was over, they knew he's making a jab at us. Where can we find that? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Now, Isaiah is one of the major prophets. He's one of four major prophets. And he's been around, his, his book, the scroll of Isaiah, has been around for a long time at this point. Almost, well, about 750 years, Isaiah has been, has been considered to be a, a prophetic book to the Pharisees and the priests at the time of Mark 11. 750 years, give or take. So do you think the head priests, do you think the Pharisees knew the book of Isaiah? You better believe it, yeah, absolutely. So Isaiah chapter 5 says this right here. Starting in verse 1, Isaiah 5. This is like our decoder ring that we're going to use to understand this parable. He says in verse five, verse, verse 1, I want to sing a song for someone I love, God says. A song about my Dodi, my, my beloved. You guys remember the song of Solomon where it says, Ani le Dodi ve Dodi li. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. That's that word Dod, Dod, Dod. Now, that's what, I think that's where we get the English, and don't dote over him, I think, but I'm not sure. So, I want to sing a song about my loved one, my beloved, and his karim, his vineyard. My loved one, my dodi, had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug up its stones and cleared them away. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower. What does that remind you of? Mark 11, the parable, in the middle of it. So there's a watchtower in the middle of the vineyard. So if you said temple, I think you were right, that the watchtower equals the temple. And he carved out of its rock a wine press, and he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced sour grapes. Now, I, I lived for 14 years in Central Florida and, and Polk County, Florida. And, and uh, yeah, you know all about this, other Polk County, Florida people. You know, during the winter when you drive in the back roads of Polk County, you roll the windows down and this odor comes in. Not that odor, the good odor. <laughs> the good odor of citrus blossoms. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It is like angel, it's a heavenly smell. It comes through, it wafts through your car. And you're just driving out there, like just out south of Winter Haven, Florida, and you just roll those windows down, you see the blooms, the citrus blooms, the orange blossoms, and it comes into your car. And you're like, wow, that smells amazing. That's the smell of sweet oranges that are beginning, that are gonna, that are gonna grow in these trees. Acres and acres of orange trees in Florida. Now, I, I, I've gone kayaking down many of creeks and rivers in Florida. And, and you'll be kayaking down this creek, and you'll see this tree hanging over. And Todd, you were there with me when we did this. You'll see this tree hanging over, and it's loaded with fruit. Orange, oranges. Loaded in the middle of nowhere. You'll just see this massive orange tree, and you're like, whoa, that's amazing. But guess what? 
you have a 50-50 chance that if you bite into that orange, it's gonna make you pucker like nothing you've ever puckered on before. It will be so sour. It's like, man, oh, like I just start crying. Like, oh, what did I just eat? And my lips are all tingly and it's just sour. Or it'll be the sweetest orange you've ever had. That's if you find it in the wild. Now, I've done this many times where I've gone into an orange tree in the wild, in the middle of the woods, I've plucked an orange off it, I've taken a knife, I've bored, bored a hole in it, and it squeezed a little bit of the juice in my mouth, just a tiny bit on my tongue. I'm like, oh man, that is so sour. That's not a good orange, that's not a good one. All right, you expect something good, something sweet, and then you, you're like, oh, excited about it. And then you get it, and you're like, oh no, this was not good, that tree. Now I'm gonna be feeling that for like the next hour. Well, I think that's what's going on here. It's like I expected there to be good, sweet grapes, but there were only sour ones. It's a disappointment. But we have a bit of information, don't we, when we look at this parable now. But I wanna give you another decoder ring real quick. Jeremiah chapter 12. Go with me to Jeremiah 12. Jeremiah 12. Jeremiah is also a major prophet. There's four major prophets, remember that. Three died of unnatural causes. We've got Daniel, we've got Jeremiah, we've got Isaiah, and Ezekiel, the four major prophets. Okay? Jeremiah is one of them. Jeremiah here, what God is saying through Jeremiah, verse 9, Jeremiah 12, 9, For me, my heritage is like a speckled bird of prey. Other birds of prey surround her and attack her. Go gather all the wild animals and bring them to devour her. Talking about the city of Jerusalem, by the way. Because... Many shepherds, it uses Roim Rabim, Roim Rabim, have destroyed my what? Vineyard. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. So who is Jeremiah possibly talking about? Who are the shepherds of Israel at this time? The priests are. The priests are. And Jeremiah, well, God through Jeremiah is saying, those shepherds I entrusted to care for my vineyard and to my sheep, they have ruined my vineyard. They have let it go wild basically so now we have a little information now we can fill these blanks in what is the vineyard wait did i read all of isaiah 5 i didn't let me read let me go back to isaiah 5 because verse 3 says isaiah 5 3 now citizens of jerusalem and people of judah judge between me and my vineyard what more could i have done for my vineyard that i haven't already done for it so why when i expect good grapes does it produce sour grapes now come i will tell you what i will do with my vineyard i will remove its hedge and its grapes will be eaten up. I will break through its fence, and its vines will be trampled down. I will go to let, let it go to waste. It will, it will be neither pruned nor hoed, but overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also order the clouds not to let rain fall on it. Now the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is, are you guys there? Israel. Look at Isaiah 5, 7. Now the vineyard of Adonai Sebaoth, the Lord of hosts, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are like the plants he delighted in. So he expected justice, but look, bloodshed. And righteousness, but listen, cries of distress. So we have some information. What is the vineyard? Israel. It's blue markers, huh? Who are the tenants then? Who are the evil tenants in this situation? Who was in charge of Israel to guide, to shepherd, to teach? 
We can say the priests. Yeah, Levites. What is the tower? I would say it's the temple. In the, the middle of the vineyard. What is the wine press? We talked about that. I, I, I'm going to postulate that it's the altar. Who is the owner? God is. Who are the servants then? Remember we talked last week, Mark 11. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you. I've sent you prophets, but you've killed them, right? The, the, the prophets. And who is the son? You guys got it. That's Yeshua. Why three servants? Why the three? Well, because here's why. Like I said, there's four major prophets. Three of them died of unnatural causes. Let's talk about how. Isaiah sawed in half by his own people because of the message that he was bringing to Israel. Ezekiel and Jeremiah both stoned to death. Do you guys see the stoning in the parable? And then he says, I sent many others beside them. That I think he's talking about the minor prophets. That I think he's talking about the minor prophets. So this is kind of, I think this parable is twofold. It's a warning to those who want to lead and shepherd people, right? It's a warning at that time. We could, we could say, just apply it to that time right there. It's a condemnation on the priests. You guys are corrupt. You've messed this up. You've polluted the well, so to speak. But I think it's also a warning to future shepherds, to future people who want to be tenants, we could say. But it's also a warning to you aspiring prophets. If you claim to be operating in the office of prophets, prepare to meet an untimely and inglorious death. The role and office of the prophet did not afford these people the luxury of living in mansions while living off the seeds, quote-unquote, sown into their ministries by online donations. Nor did the prophets get predictions wrong and not be allowed to walk free. The main role of these great prophets wasn't even to predict the future or unravel the mysteries and the timing of the final coming, the second coming of, of Yeshua. No. The prophets hearkened on one major theme. What do you think that was? Repent. Teshuvah. Return to the covenant. You're heading for judgment, they would say. Here is what the judgment will look like if you don't do teshuvah. Don't repent. But when you do experience this judgment, the prophets say, God will still, still show you compassion and mercy. If then you repent, he will bring you back into his land. Ironically, guys, there are men and women walking around today who make false predictions and whose feet are sadly devoid of any burns from us holding them to the fire. There are too many quote-unquote prophets who use the title prophet or prophetess to exploit other human beings and children of God and in doing so live luxurious lives well beyond the level of those to whom they supposedly minister. Ironically, this is exactly what the real biblical prophets warned religious leaders not to do to the people and for that 
I believe these false prophets that we see working and operating today, and prophetesses, I'm going to be fair, will face a harsh judgment. Well, let's go back to our parable. That was a little bit of a sign. Why should any of this parable matter to us today? So we've decoded the parable. Why does it matter to us today? Where do we fit in? And how do we accurately translate this? We could say in a way that we all have been given a vineyard to tend. Right? Are we being good stewards of that vineyard? Now the vineyard in my life is like my time, my family, and being a shepherd of Dothan Messianic Fellowship. That's the vineyard that's been entrusted to me. And the king will come and he'll say, what did you do with the vineyard? Now you guys have vineyards in your lives. It might be your wife, it might be your children, it might be you know, your job, it might be your schooling, or whatever season of life you're in, but you have a vineyard. Number one, all of us have is time, that we all have in common is time. What we do with that vineyard of time is so important. We, uh, we, um, we could say, now let me give you the, another translation of this, this parable. Let me give you the replacement theology translation of this parable. In other words, God is done with Israel. God has divorced Israel. He's cut them off. He's leveled the vineyard. And now he's going with plan B. He's no longer going to use Israel for anything. That's called replacement theology. And we wholesale denounce that here in our congregation. God is not done with Israel. He never was done with Israel. All right? I want to give you a biblical interpretation of this right here. Where we fit in, most of you in this room are not native-born Israelites, are not Jews by birth. And where do we fit into that? Well, go to Romans 11, and I'll show you where you fit in. Romans 11. Romans 11. In that case, I say, isn't it that God has repudiated his people, like put them away? Heaven forbid. Because if God does that, he's a liar. And my God's not a liar. For I myself, Paul says, am a son of Israel, the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He has not repudiated his people, whom he chose in advance. Or don't you know what the scripture says about Eliyahu, the prophet? He pleads with God against Israel. Adonai, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I'm the only one left. And now they want to kill me too. But what is God's answer to him? I have kept for myself a remnant. Right? 7,000 who have not knelt to Baal. It's the same way in the present age. There is a remnant of Israel. Right? A remnant that's been chosen by grace. Now if it is by grace... It is according, not based on their works of the law. Otherwise, it wouldn't be great, right? What follows is that Israel has not attained the goal for which she is striving. The ones chosen have obtained it, but the rest have been made stone-like. Just like the scripture says, God has given them a spirit of dullness, eyes that cannot see, ears that do not hear, right down to the present day. And that's why, that's why he's saying some of them rejected the good news. Some of them are like, that to me is not good news. Right? And then David says, 
Let their dining table become for them like a snare and a trap and a pitfall and a punishment. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see with their backs being bent continually. This reminds me of when Joseph, when, when Joseph's brothers approached him in Egypt and they couldn't see that he was their own brother, right? Like I talked to you about how the story reminds me about Joseph, the son that was betrayed and, and he was quote unquote killed. And he became a leader of the then known Gentile world. And his own brothers go up to him looking for salvation, looking for bread, and they can't even recognize their own brother. In that case, I say, isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they have permanently fallen away? Heaven forbid, Paul says again, quite the contrary. It is by means of their stumbling that the deliverance has come to the who? Gentiles. What is he talking about? Isaiah 52, remember? That even the Gentiles to the ends of the earth will hear about this Yeshua. Just like in Egypt, all the Egyptians knew about Zaphnath Paneah. Why? Why will it come to the Gentiles? In order to provoke them to jealousy. Moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel's being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the latter, how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring them? However, to those of you who are Gentiles, listen closely, if you're a Gentile, you, you've not been born into a Jewish home, listen closely, I say this, since I myself am an emissary sent to you, the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if they're casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting of him be? It'll be like life from the dead, right? Let's get down to verse 25 real quick. For brothers, I want you to understand this truth, which God formerly concealed, but is now revealing so that you won't imagine you, you know more than you actually do. It is that stoniness to a degree that has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters its fullness and that it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. So do you hear any language about, yeah, Israel's been cut off, Israel's been divorced, God's going with plan B. Do you hear any of that? There's Israel, then there's church. There's law, then there's grace. No, Paul does not pick up on any of that. He does not believe that. He believes that Israel is the vehicle of salvation all the way through to the end. And that we as Gentiles, he goes on in Romans 11 to say, are like wild olive branches that have been grafted into the natural tree. We've been grafted into this. We scoot a chair up to that table as guests. And we say, now I'm part, Ephesians 2, now I'm part of the covenants and the promises given to Israel. There isn't a cutting off of the tree. There are cutting off of unbelieving branches that will later be grafted back on. But there's a grafting in of the body of Messiah into the natural tree. So the story is not over, in other words. We who are engrafted branches producing the fruit of the natural tree, right? We're not going to be producing oranges. If we're grafted into an olive tree, what kind of fruit are we expected to produce? Olives. So we who are producing the olives, the natural tree, we are like cogs in the gears of redemption bringing us closer to the day of great salvation when God's elect, Israel, not who John Calvin says, the nation of Israel will no longer say, here comes the son, let's kill him, the inheritance will be ours. But instead they will say, Baruch Habah, Bashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So guys, keep doing your part. Keep producing the fruit of the tree that is fitting with repentance. I want to leave you with two main questions before we pray. When have you been an evil tenant of your vineyard? When do you recall yourself being a good tenant of your vineyard? Identify those in your past. Repent of them. Be a good tenant of the vineyard he's entrusted you. Let's pray, and then we'll go to uh, Q&A. Abba Father, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for all of us, even to the ends of the earth. Kol HaGoyim, all the Gentiles can hear of your great salvation. We recognize that and embrace that. We thank you that you're a loving and merciful God. And may this time of fellowship as we continue to break bread together, as we continue to eat, may it be honoring of you. May all of our conversations be honoring of you and lift you up and exalt you, great name. I pray all this in the mighty name of salvation, Yeshua, the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Amen, amen. So uh, I normally go to Q&A, but maybe I'll take just a quick minute and talk about uh, many of us went to a protest on Highway 84 outside of Flowers Hospital. You might be thinking, well, why? Um, all, the, all the protest was about was a mandate that's coming down from the CEO of Flowers Hospital by the name of Jeff Brannon. And he is basically rolling out a mandate, though it's not official yet. He's saying that right now it's in place that you need to be vaccinated or undergo bi-weekly testing. Now, vaccinating, not vaccinating. We've always said, it's always been our position here at Go the Messianic Fellowship. Your decision of what you do and what medical procedures you, you take on is between you and your doctor. And really the issue here is not vaccinations. The issue is, does the federal government have the right to say, you must inject this in your body? That's the crux of the issue. It could be like cookies, chocolate chip cookies, which I love. And maybe they're made of like, I don't know, broccoli flour or something like that. They're healthy chocolate chip cookies. And like here, you have to eat a cookie a day. It could be something wonderfully beneficial to our bodies or something like that. The, the, the federal government does not have constitutionally the right to impose a medical procedure or chocolate chip cookies on us, right? Now, why is that so important? Why is it important we get involved in that political process and we stand up and we say, no, this is not something that we're okay with? Why is that important? We as Americans, we're so short-sighted. We think like in the next couple of years. And I had people driving by in the protest, uh, a, young, a young woman, um, maybe looked like 16, 17 years old, was hanging out the window, and she says, come on, get vaccinated, it's not that hard. <laughs> this, will be, this will be over if you all just get vaccinated. Well, that's thinking really short-sighted. Now, I want COVID to be over, believe me. And if you've been vaccinated in this room, that's, I don't care. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is when you think short-sighted, that, yeah, I'm going to let the federal government tell me that I have to undergo a medical procedure. What you're doing is you're taking a set of keys and you're handing it to a leader of a secular government and you're saying, here you go, here's my body. I'm handing you ownership of my body. Now, let's say the current president is like completely on our side and completely concerned about our health and just wants everyone to be happy and healthy. And that's, let's say that. The next guy that gets in office, are we guaranteed that he has the same moral character? No. 
That, in legal terms, is called precedence. Have you ever heard of that? Precedence. So if we let a leader of the United States of America say, and we hand over the keys to our bodies, and in, in, effect, in effect saying, you own me. That's a statement of ownership. If you can inject something in my body or something in my kid's body, you're saying, you're in charge of me, you own me. Okay? When we hand those keys over, even to a perfect, if it was Mother Teresa, uh-uh, because Mother Teresa's not gonna be there but for four years. You see what I'm saying? The next person that comes in, the next person that comes in, the next person, that's precedent that we have, we have surrendered over to that person. So what we have told every president there on after is, if it's a, a matter of national security, you can force people to undergo medical procedures. Gabe Rutledge is not handing those keys over. My maker, my creator, owns Gabe Rutledge. You understand what I'm saying? So we stood out there on that highway. I had my guitar, we sang worship songs. There was way more people than we imagined ever going to be there. Of course, WTVY said there was a few dozen, <laughs> or something like that. It's craziness. There was a ton of people there. And, oh man, the car is driving by, honking in support of us. It was amazing. But we stood there because we realized we're looking long-term here. Any student of history that looks at the 1930s in Germany looks at these things called the Nuremberg Laws. And you can look in hindsight and see that the Jewish people in Germany were a frog that was being boiled. And Adolf Hitler knew exactly what he was doing. I don't have to do this overnight. Give me about 12 years, and I can get these people to willingly load up on a train and go somewhere. It's all about precedence. And when we hand keys over, we're saying, here you go. And then he's going to take those keys. Do you think he's ever going to get those keys back? No. He's going to take those keys and he's going to take it to the next guy, the next gal who comes into office and say, here, I have these set of keys here. It's about 350 million sets of keys. Do whatever you want with them. Again, some of the, the, news, the news outlets that covered this, they made it about anti-vaccine or anti-science or whatever. Our protesting out there was not anti-vaccine. It was anti-handing over the keys to our bodies to a person that doesn't recognize that we are first and foremost owned by our creator. And the slippery slope that that takes us down. Even if it, like I said, if it was mandatory chocolate chip cookies, I'd be standing out there on Highway 84. So, what happened with Flowers, with Flowers Hospital? What happens with Flowers Hospital, they're saying, is what will happen with the rest of the hospitals in Alabama. All eyes, in terms of the hospital networks in Alabama, are on Flowers. Guys, I was standing next to a nurse that 33 years at Flowers, and she's facing termination because she has moral convictions of not getting this vaccine. 33 years. It was like 2020, here's free Krispy Kreme, everybody. Thank you for being frontline workers. 2021, show me your papers. Ooh, that happened really fast. If we don't stand and be a voice for those people, who do you think is next after nurses? Paperwork was just submitted to the FDA, approval for five to whatever year olds. If your kid is in a public school right now, you're beholden to the government that's paying that school. If their hands are in your pocket, 
done. I'm just saying. Homeschooling has exploded right now. Exploded. So that's why we were there. We want to stop the slippery slope. And we want to say, no, you don't own us. Fact check. <laughs> no, you don't. 